Well, we find ourselves towards the end of Romans chapter 11, towards the end of Romans chapter 11. We're gonna read verses 33 through 36, Romans 11, 33 through 36. And we're gonna cover, um, I believe our shortest uh, length of text uh, in Romans. We're just gonna look at verse 33 this morning. But we're gonna read this whole section. Romans 11, verse 33 through 36. This is perhaps the uh, Mount Everest of benedictions, the greatest of all praises that go to God recorded in Scripture. So let's read together. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, do you remember using tracing paper uh, as a child? It led to some incredible results because all of a sudden, the child whose pinnacle of artistic ability used to be stick figures produced a near perfect replica of Simba from The Lion King. But tracing paper, as you would realize, has its limitations. Now, tracing paper is not particularly helpful in tracing, for example, most photographs, especially if everything is of a similar color or, or hue. And it's because it's hard to capture shading and depth and color with tracing paper. The things that make photographs appear real are the things that tracing paper fails to capture. And so it is with God. Try as we might to draw out a picture of God, to figure out his plans and his purposes of, of how his sovereignty works in this world. We cannot expect to perfectly trace a picture of God. But does that mean that God is completely unknowable? That we shouldn't even try to understand God? And if that were so, then why did God preserve his word? Why does God himself tell us how he plans to work in his word? Why does God explain his sovereignty, his wisdom, his grace, and his love? You see, God has revealed himself because he created us to know and to understand his revelation. He created us to find our, our actually our, our highest joy in, in knowing and worshiping him and seeing him in his word. And so we have a tension. On, on the one hand, God is far greater than us in every way, and we cannot expect to fully understand him. We cannot trace him, for his ways are perfect. But on the other hand, he, he calls us to come and worship him. He wants us to recognize who he is. He wants us to know his grace and to be assured of the forgiveness of sins. Romans 11, 33 through 36, captures this tension perfectly. Here is an invocation to praise. 
Its cadence and words are familiar and encourages us to give us give glory to God. But the details of the praise are intentionally humbling for us. You see, Paul, with a, a reverential sense of awe, mixed with the fear, mixed with holy wonder and a touch of confusion, concludes chapters 9 through 11 on his knees coming to worship God, but feeling inadequate to the task. You see, after looking out through his pen to a congregation of mostly Gentile Christians in Rome, Romans 9 through 11 is his explanation of how we got here, of how Christianity shifted from essentially a Jewish religion to one that includes some from every nation, tongue, and tribe. These chapters contain perhaps the clearest words in scriptures about God's sovereign plan to both save some and harden others. And Paul faithfully explains what he can of how God works. He even expects us to learn it as he goes along. But but in the end, his praise confesses, glory to God in the highest, even if I can't trace all your ways. For to say that God's ways are inscrutable, as we see at the end of verse 33, we could also translate that, His ways are untraceable. They cannot be fully and finally tracked in the finite minds of men. So the transcendent, holy, and majestic Lord of all made you and I to be worshipers and invites us to do just that. We just sang one of the great Christmas hymns, Angels from Realms of Glory, or as our version is titled, Come and Worship. It really is designed to put us in the place of the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. Remember singing that song? They're shocked by the appearance of angels from realms of glory and then shocked again as they, lowly shepherds, are invited to go and see Christ the Lord. The lowly, undeserved shepherds are invited to come and worship Christ, the newborn king, the, the first to do so. The angels, as ones who sang at the beginning of creation's story, are also filled with awe and wonders. You read Luke 2, at the word of God made flesh, at God the Son incarnate, coming as a humble baby, so that we, while we were still sinners, can be redeemed out of slavery of sin, forgiven and reconciled to God. Oh, the glories of these truths, they are worth singing about. And we too glory at the reality that we too are called to come and worship. They fill our hearts with joy and at the same time are humbling and profound. And so John Calvin helps us appreciate the humility these words of praise provoke in the Christian soul as he writes, should we therefore at any time enter upon a discourse or a talk concerning the eternal counsels of a merciful father, we ought always to restrain and curb both our genius or intellect and language, speaking with sobriety and within the limits prescribed by the word of God. And our disputation should at last end, like Paul's, in wonder and astonishment. 
And so our plan is to spend the next three weeks being provoked to wonder and astonishment, humility and praise in these final verses of chapter 11. It's very appropriate leading up to the festival of the incarnation, the joys of Christmas, to spend a few more minutes than normal at awe of the greatness of God. And so this morning we'll discover two ways to faithfully glorify God with your life. Two ways to faithfully glorify God with your life. If we aren't careful, we can let glorious things become mundane things. And perhaps familiarity with these verses have have led us to not even consider the depths of their meaning. So as you read the Bible during your family worship, as you read on an Advent devotion, as you pray and read on your own, in your own times of prayer, our first way to keep from letting the glorious become mundane is number one, stay surprised at the depth of God. Stay surprised at the depth of God. Now you might look at that and you say, you know what, how can you manufacture surprise? And if you've read through the Bible, maybe perhaps many times, maybe you don't often get surprised by what you read in the next verse. What I've found to be incredibly helpful to keep a genuine surprise over the character and nature of God is a couple of very simple things. Number one, slow down. Don't sit there and try and read as much as you possibly can every single time you read. Slow down. Cut out the distractions. Keep your cell phone in another room. Turn off the notifications on your watch. And spend time asking questions of God. Questions that come up as you read his word. And then try to answer them. Keep your Bible open. Use a good study Bible with all the footnotes and all the cross-references. And look up those cross-references. Don't just assume you remember what they say. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to get a chance to slow down together and think carefully about each word to chase down the cross-references. And as we look at verse 33, we're going to start with one word. Oh. Oh. It's one letter in the Greek. It's an exclamation, in, uh, the, according to the dictionary, an emotional assertion of awe. And it's something that translates into every culture. Uh, Sometimes when you see a little newborn sleeping peacefully, the perfect little button for a nose and their tiny little wrinkle hands grasping the, the blanket in front of them, sometimes all you can muster when you look at that newborn is, oh, right? Like you can't say anything else, just, And that's enough. We understand that's enough. We intuitively get this. And that's how Paul starts his prayer. With a sigh, a joyful sigh, a a sigh that's filled with wonder and amazement at the goodness of God. In in light of how God has worked to harden some hearts and, and show mercy to others. In light of how God's future plans for Israel and current goals of extending the church to every nation and tribe, Paul simply starts his praise with, oh. 
And then he notes the depths of three of God's attributes in verse 33, right? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. But the focus of each of these is the depth of these attributes. And by using the word deep, he actually gives us a useful picture. So to call God's attributes deep has two implications. Perhaps first, deep implies something that is hidden. You see, the world record depth for free divers without oxygen is 831 feet. Apparently, the guy who did that got some brain damage as he came back up. But still, like, that's incredible, right? Now, I can barely reach the deep end of the pool before I'm like, yep, got to get up. Time to come up, right? 831 feet, this guy made it down. But that doesn't even compare to the depths of the ocean, does it? 831 feet is like the mere surface waters of the ocean. For the deepest parts of the ocean are 36,201 feet, or so they believe. We hardly know what's down there. Some have said we actually know more about the moon than we do about the deepest parts of the ocean. And so deep things often are hidden things. So to say God's attributes are, are deep in some sense, it means that they are veiled, that they are hidden. Daniel 2, 21 and 22 puts it like this. God gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things, and he knows what is in the darkness. So to refer to the depths of God implies a hiddenness to his attributes. But second, deep attributes of God also imply something on the foundations, the foundation levels, like of a building, deep into the foundations of the earth. Certainly, Paul could have said, oh, the heights of God, right? He certainly could have said the profound pinnacles of all of God's attributes. And certainly, we have reason to praise God for the heights of his attributes. However, the focus here in this verse is the depth of his attributes. So I imply that to mean the foundations, the, the beginnings of his attributes. So think about it like this. The difference is between the deep roots and the lofty branches of a tree, beginnings that stabilize like the roots versus the lofty goals to reach. God here is focusing on the roots or the depth, the foundations of his attributes. All that he is, the very source of who he is in life. But in what ways does Paul extol the depths of God? Well, he's going to focus on three attributes. First, we see it up there already, deep wealth. Deep wealth. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of God. And so when we think of God as rich, to start with, it's because he created and he owns absolutely everything, right? I mean, Psalm 104 verse 24 says, O Lord, how manifold are your works in your wisdom. Have you made them all? The earth is full of your creatures. And of course, Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. So not only does God actually own everything, he can make whatever else he wants to make whenever he wants to make it. 
I mean, think about that, right? When you want to make something, you have to have resources. You have to have materials. We're limited to what we have at hand. Now, you can have tools and other things to shape and fashion resources into something else, and that is a great blessing that we have. But here, I want you to notice that God makes everything out of what? Nothing, which is the most abundant resource in all of the galaxy, right? So not only does God as creator own everything, he could do whatever he wants to do with nothing and create more. And God is incredibly wealthy. But we also need to understand that God himself is a rich treasure. A treasure that he shares with us in Christ. And that's the sense of wealth that Paul gives in Romans chapter 10. It's through faith in Christ that we are declared to be right with God, united with Christ, and thus share in God's abounding wealth. Look at Romans 10, verse 9. We're reminded, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, is declared right before God. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 12 continues, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So what are the riches of God here? It's his salvation it's a restored standing and eyes to see the lordship of christ and in romans eleven twelve, we see god's treasure extends to the whole world through the disobedience of the jews romans 11 verse 12 read that with me now if the jews trespass means riches that's word again riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the gentiles how much more will their full inclusion mean Again, riches mean the wealth of belonging to Christ, the wealth of our salvation. To see this elsewhere, I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, verse 6. In this passage, we see unmistakably that the riches of God are not simply personal benefits like forgiveness of your sins or eternal life. But the riches that God gives us is Christ himself. Our greatest treasure is to belong to Christ. So, so look at Ephesians 3, verse 6 with me. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. They are members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, Jews, Gentiles, the whole world, anybody who trusts in Christ as their Lord and Savior are fellow heirs with Christ. They're united to God's eternal family there. They are also members of Christ's body. And then he continues, of this gospel, verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, Paul says, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
the unsearchable riches of Christ. It isn't the gospel benefits that are the riches. It's the unsearchable riches of the person of Christ. The one whose very body we are said to join. Baptism represents that, right? You are baptized and united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection as you come up out of the water, signifying the newness of life that God has granted to us and our union with Christ. Beloved, the very foundation, the deepest source of God's wealth is available to us. The wealth of God himself. And there is immense joy in knowing the one who created you and in having your life hidden with Christ. For God is the most precious commodity in all of life. So stay surprised at the depth of God's wealth, the wealth of the universe that is ours in Christ. Go ahead and go back to Romans 11. And we'll see the second foundational and deep attribute of God. Number two, deep wisdom. Deep wisdom. Romans eleven thirty three says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God. So wisdom is God's unique ability to always choose the best means to accomplish whatever he wants. It's God's ability to look at every possible butterfly effect. You guys have heard of the butterfly effect, right? It's the idea that a butterfly flaps its wings and that flap of wings has a trickle-down effect that affects something else down wind of this little tiny butterfly. It's the idea that everything that happens in the universe is related to something else And so in God's infinite wisdom, he causes the right butterfly to flap its wings at the perfect time and the perfect place, right? The idea is that God orchestrates literally everything. doesn't matter if it's a massive thing or a tiny thing. God is sovereign over everything. And this is according to God's wisdom because he makes everything happen according to what he wants. Now, over Thanksgiving, we uh, had some of our Indian friends over, and we were talking about how much more difficult it is, it is to drive in India compared to the United States. You've got little, little motorcycles uh, swerving in and out uh, of traffic. Uh, lanes are, at best, suggestions, and if you think you can fit four or five lanes of traffic in three lanes, Go for it, right? And if it's supposed to be one way, it's okay. You can go the other way. You know, we just, it's go and every man for himself. You constantly have to be aware 360 degrees of what's going on around you because you don't know what's going to happen or who's going to come and dart in front or all around you. And with thousands of decisions being made every minute on just one street in India, the depth of the wisdom of our sovereign God to sustain all of that seeming chaos is profound. He perfectly causes all things to happen, even in something that we might think is chaotic, to accomplish his good and perfect plan. Now, I can't even seem to keep track of my own calendar or my own to-do list. I I hate to admit it, but I drop plenty of balls in my relatively small world. 
But God's wisdom helps to execute his sovereign rule over 7 billion plus people? This is foundational, rooted wisdom. It's part of who God is as the only sovereign of the universe. But then get this. Such profound, deep wisdom is applied so that all things work together for the good of those who belong to Christ. Romans 8, 28. And in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, we get another glimpse of God's infinite wisdom. So turn to 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. That's the very next book to your right. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, we see that God's wisdom is actually said to be folly or seeming to be folly to the world. To think that Anything good could come from a crucified Messiah seemed ludicrous to the Gentiles and was offensive to the Jews because they were offended that someone would think that their Messiah would die on the cross. And so the whole world seemed to think that the uh, crucified Jesus was, was crazy. And yet, what do we see in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 24? But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the what? The wisdom of God. And so God's infinite wisdom isn't just applied to keeping a few more people safe on the road in India. It's applied to orchestrating human history to have Jesus crucified at the exact moment that God desired. When the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the temple at the exact moment that the prophets prophesied he would come into Jerusalem, Jesus is crucified. And so Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6 and 7. Read with me. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So in other words, if, if you're a Christian and you're, and you're starting to grow, he's saying, I want to give you some wisdom. I want to give you a sneak peek of the wisdom of God. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. I mean, think about that, right? God's wisdom in his plan of salvation, his plans is then Jesus. This is not something that God just made up as he went along. This is God's perfect plan declared beforehand for our glory. He didn't say his glory, he says for our glory, right? In God's wisdom, he sees fit to give us a type of glory as well. I think how profound this is. We are certainly not worthy of glory. And yet God says in his profound wisdom, he's orchestrated salvation for our glory. Verse eight continues. None of the rulers of this age understand this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Listen, God prepared the death of Christ and used many a mighty man like a pawn to accomplish his perfect plan. And even as demons, no doubt, helped influence the horrendous crime of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God in his wisdom used their evil for the ultimate good. And as Jesus hung on the cross, the demons thinking they had won or accomplished some sort of victory, God the Father poured out his wrath for the sins of humanity as he hung on the tree. 
so that we could be made right with him for all eternity. So that we could, what does it say in verse 7? We could have the glory that's coming to us. Our future glory. God killed his son so that he would be able to pardon our sin and declare us right and glorious. So this is God's gospel wisdom wisdom, shown to us by the Holy Spirit. That's his point in verse 10, right? Read with me. These things God has revealed to us, these wise things of God, these hidden wise things of God, God has revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches even the depths of God. There's our word again, right? The depths of God's wisdom turned into an instrument of torturous public execution into the sweetest symbol of God's generous grace for sinners. I mean, do you think how weird it is that you have a cross hanging above you? That you're wearing a jewelry with a piece of cross on it? Like, that's like wearing an electric chair piece of jewelry, right? It was the capital punishment of the day. God has transformed a horrendous thing, even a wicked act in the cross into something beautiful and glorious and, and precious to us. Oh, the depths of the wisdom of God. And only God, the Holy Spirit, can reveal the depth of God's wisdom to our souls and open our blind eyes to see the cross as glorious and not as foolish. So stay stay surprised at God's powerful wisdom at work in the world and in your life. Well, there's a third attribute. Go ahead and go back to Romans 11. He starts off with his exclamation, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. So if wisdom is God's knowledge applied to do whatever he wants in all this world, knowledge then is God's ability to know all that is, all that was, all that will be, and even all that could be. This is to say that God is omniscient, means all-knowing. He knows the secrets of our hearts, and nothing escapes his notice. Hebrews 4.13 puts it like this, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. In some sense, the omniscience of God can be a bit frightening to consider. You see, most of us, because of shame, keep our public sins a little more subdued or a little bit more under wraps. But very often we give ourselves a lot more liberty in the private sins of life. We're a lot more likely to make up excuses for why it's okay for us to sin, lie, cheat, lust, thinking that we're not hurting anybody else. We often try to ignore our private sins. 
acting like as long as my wife, my parents, my friends don't see the sin, I'll be okay. And we act like it doesn't matter that God somehow can't see us. But the truth of the matter is God does see. And so as we consider his omniscience, perhaps this is one of the most convicting areas of God's attributes. Because we realize that he sees everything. He sees every thought. He knows a word before it's on our tongue. But in addition to conviction, as we think about the omniscience of God, it can also be a great comfort, especially because if we know we belong to him, we'll never be lost. We'll never be distant from God because he'll be with us. So that's where Psalm 139 really helps us. It's both convicting to think of his omniscience, but it's also a comfort. Look at Psalm 139, verse 3. He says, you search out my path, and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is, is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. That last line is an incredible comfort, right? You hem me in before and behind. I awake and I know that I'm with you. The God who knows every grain of sand, who knows every word I speak before it's even on my tongue is there for us when we lie down and when we wake up. I mean, sleep is such a profound picture of our dependence, our creatureliness, right? I mean, every single day you spend six to eight hours basically helpless, defenseless. And God knows everything that's going on. Perhaps we should erupt in praise a little more often, like David. In verse six, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. But perhaps the most precious knowledge to pursue is to know how God plans to save the world. See, God didn't just make up a plan to save the world as he went along, like I often do. God has always planned to redeem fallen humanity. He promised Eve a son in the garden who would one day crush the head of the serpent. And so in accordance with God's omniscience and his wisdom, he prepared the way for Christ throughout the Old Testament. He knew the day of Christ's birth, the day of Christ's death, the day of Christ's resurrection. And it's this knowledge of God's gospel plan that radically alters how we are to live our lives. To help you see this, I want you to turn to Colossians chapter two. Go to Colossians chapter two. 
Colossians is a letter written to a church that, that Paul had, had never met. And in chapter two, Paul tells them the type of prayer he's been praying for them. A prayer for unity that, that's bonded or glued together because they all know Christ. Look at Colossians 2, verse 1. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. This is like an agonizing struggle that he has to pray for them. What? Verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love as, as a church, as a body, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. I mean, you see all three words that we have in Romans 11 right here in that verse, don't you? The riches, full understanding, and knowledge of God's mystery. Where does it all come to? It all comes in Christ in Christ, verse 3 tells us, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is wisdom personified. And to know Christ is to know God's plan for salvation. Beloved, this is what causes Christians to be united in gospel love. To recognize that we serve the omniscient Lord of all. We belong to Christ. And what is so surprising about the depth of each of these attributes, God's wealth, his wisdom, his knowledge, is that the Bible describes each of them in terms of how they work to glorify God by saving us. So the surprise that we should seek to capture as we understand God and his attributes is really twofold. I think we are genuinely surprised, perhaps filled with awe, a bit of holy fear and humbly trembling when we simply consider the weightiness of who God is, his wealth that knows no end, his wisdom that orchestrates everything, always, in all times, to accomplish his perfect plans, and his omniscience that sees even what we do in secret. But on the other hand, we, we are surprised that all of those attributes of God are not working together simply to crush us and to call us to account for sins, but they are working according to God's gospel work for undeserved sinners to save us. Oh, beloved, that is why we should be surprised as we study God's attributes. Now, just this last October, my family and many of you planned an elaborate ruse to throw a surprise birthday party for me. And honestly, I had no idea what was going on until I walked into a barn filled with 100 kazoos commingled with shouts of surprise and happy birthday, right? It was very sweet surprise. It was a gracious, unasked for surprise. It was a gesture of kindness and outpouring of love. And I am genuinely filled with gratitude. But if the whole church started throwing me surprise birthday parties every single year, I think I'd begin to catch on a bit, right? And then you're like, oh, okay, what's gonna happen this year? When is it gonna be this year? Uh, I was talking to a friend and uh, uh, when we were younger, the, the college friends threw him a surprise birthday party every year so that they weren't exactly surprised. They were just kind of like, how's this thing gonna come up this time, right? Perhaps surprises that you have in your life begin to lack a little bit of luster. But is that the way you feel about God? You think you know there's everything to know about God. 
you haven't really been surprised for years in church because you come into church every single week and think, I know that. I read that church. I read that uh, passage. I'm perfectly aware of what's going on in this text. I don't need to learn anything. Has God perhaps lost a bit of his brilliance and surprise in your mind? Oh, beloved, unlike a yearly surprise birthday party, who God is shouldn't lose its shock value week after week after week, year after year. You need to continue to remember afresh your sins week after week after week and year after year after year. You need to continue to remember your sins from years ago and remember that but by the grace of God, you'd be his raging enemy, fighting with all your might for your own fleshly passions. You wouldn't know the wealth of God in Christ whatsoever. You couldn't understand the joys of being adopted into God's family and thus cared for by your heavenly father. And so we should indeed stay surprised every single time we sin every day at the depth of God. We should think carefully about his persons, his attributes, his works, and his salvation applied to our lives. So to keep the element of surprise in your devotional life, in your worship, we need to slow down. We need to devote time to reading God's word and to thinking about what it teaches us about who God is. We need to stay rooted in our community, our church family that is designed to surprise, to be surprised along with you of God's fresh grace, surprise of his new morning mercies. And even as we aim to stay surprised, as we study the depths of God, there will also be things that we just don't get. And so a second way to faithfully glorify God with your life is you stay surprised at the depth of God, and number two, you maintain mystery with the ways of God. You maintain mystery with the ways of God. Go ahead and go back to Romans 11 if you aren't there already. Perhaps you have watched an unbelieving father, brother, or or friend gasping for air in the hospital room. And perhaps as you try to pray with them and for for them one more time before they die, they, they cut you off and say, none of that religious garbage. And your heart breaks as you're confused as you hate the effects of sin in their life. And at a moment like that, you're probably having a hard time trusting God. You might ask God, why hasn't he come to know you? I've prayed for years. I've tried everything that I can. I've begged, I've pleaded, I've lived as upright a life as I know how, and still he remains hardened to Christ. And here he is, rebellious nearly to the last gasp. That's how Paul felt with his Jewish brothers and sisters. He was severely beaten, stoned, thrown into prison, spat at, 
cursed all by his kinsmen. And yet, what does Paul write at the beginning of this section in Romans 9? Go and read these verses with me. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That is the Israelites. And Paul goes on to help us see even the hardened hearts that break your heart are not somehow outside of God's plans. For he says this in verse 18, Romans 9, verse 18, so then God has mercy on whomever God wills and God hardens whomever God wills. And so he teaches us that God in his infinite wisdom chooses to let some remain hard and others he penetrates with his gospel of grace. And it's all according to his good plans and purposes. Right? Chapter 11, verse 12 again. Now, now if their trespass of the Jews means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion one day mean? And so sometimes in our confusion, in our questioning of God, we need to sit back and, and let God be God. Trusting him, even when we don't see his hand in the fog. Sometimes that means we need to do a better job maintaining mystery with the ways of God. Because ultimately, we understand God's judgments are unsearchable. And that's our main point here. God's judgments are unsearchable. We maintain mystery because his judgments are unsearchable. Look at chapter 11, verse 33. How unsearchable are his judgments. Meaning we don't always have clarity on the why of God's judgments. Sometimes you might think, you know what, this person appears to be a pretty good person. Why is this bad thing happening to them? But we can't always see the silent struggles of the heart. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'd probably be shocked at what we found in the silent struggles of hearts. But God isn't shocked, and he looks down on the wickedness of man and sees that all men are evil continually. And his judgments are always fair, always just, always good. And they certainly are never pointless. Look at what he says as he hardens hearts whomever he wills. Romans 9, verse 22. Go back that verse with me. It says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? You see, God says that some vessels of wrath are prepared for destructions, and yet he endures with patience with them to show his wrath. In order, verse 23 says, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which is prepared beforehand for glory. Well, you see, not a soul that God chooses to judge deserves better. And no life is meaningless in God's ways. We are simply never promised to know all the whys of God's 
right judgments and even his hardening of hearts. Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. You know, God's sovereignty over all things, his perfectly just judgments and undeserved grace, these are pretty straightforward statements. The issue isn't whether they are true. The issue is whether or not we trust God to be God. And what I love about Romans eleven thirty three, Paul says what we all often feel. We look at this and we think, how can this be? How can God say he hardens his heart and then justly punishes them? How is it that God can use a wicked sinner for his good? How can God allow suffering and allow the pain of sin to continue to happen and even harden people to the end to accomplish salvation for others? How does all these things work together? And God preserves a response that we often have. As Paul says, how unsearchable are his judgments. Lord, it is hard to understand why these things happen the way they do. So beloved, maintain mystery. The secret things belong to the Lord. But maintaining mystery doesn't mean that you don't search the scriptures. Because the more you know about God and the more he chooses, you understand what he reveals to you, you, the easier it is to trust God and to let God be God in your mind. I think Deuteronomy 29, 29 is perfect for this because, right, he says, the secret things belong to the Lord at the beginning. And then he says this, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we, we may do all the words of this law. church family. The the Bible is better than thousands of pictures and videos that might proclaim who God is or help us understand these things. God chooses to show us what we need to know to trust him, to find our greatest joy in him, preserved for us in words, in the Bible. And even when his judgments are unsearchable, he gives us what we need to know what we need to know about God and to trust in him. So not only are his judgments unsearchable, but his ways are also untraceable. I'm going to go back to Romans 11. His ways are untraceable. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We've now come full circle to what we talked about at the beginning, about the fullness of God not being able to be traced. His ways can't be measured or tracked. That's simply what inscrutable means. It means it can't be tracked, it can't be traced, it can't be measured. And that's because God's paths are greater than ours. For he always seems to make a way even when we can find no other way. Through the densest undergrowth of trials, he guides us down the deepest cliffs and valleys and up the other side, making sure each step is as he designs. We often can't see 10 steps in front of us. And so Jesus tells us, do not be anxious about tomorrow, sufficient for the day, is its own trouble. In Psalm 139, David again captures God's ability to sovereignly direct every step and guide all our ways, even if we can't figure out what he's doing. Just listen as I read Psalm 139, verse seven. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me by night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Do you trust God to be God when darkness is all around you, when you can't see, when you can't understand why God is leading you or your family or or your loved one in some difficult direction? Embrace mystery in the ways of God and trust God to give you the strength that you need for the past that you can see. Trust God to accomplish whatever he sees fit to accomplish according to his deep wisdom for his glory and your good. As we close, I want you to turn to Isaiah 55. If we want to faithfully glorify God, we have to embrace a sense of awe, of Oh, at his depth, at his grandeur, at his perfections. And we have to learn to maintain some mystery when we don't understand his ways. Our response is to deal with the sin that we can see in our lives and keep on turning to trust God to lead us, to grab his hand, and to keep walking with him. Isaiah 55 perfectly captures this response. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon There's a day when he will not be near. There's a day when he will not be found. And so while it is today, turn towards Christ. Forsake your wicked ways. And then God reminds us, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Let's pray and praise our glorious God. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we consider the glories and the perfections of who you are, the richness of your wealth, the richness of your person that is ours in Christ, as we consider your wisdom, as we consider your knowledge, as we consider that that we don't even begin to understand everything that we could about who you are. Lord, I pray that you would humble us, 
so that we might come and worship our King. That we might be able to worship you in the dark. As our paths seem slippery and unsure, Lord, help us to have the strength to put one foot in front of the next. To trust that you will always accomplish that which you purpose. You shall always succeed in the thing for that which you design. Lord, nothing comes back to you empty. Lord, we confess you are God and we are not. And may this motivate our approach to you, our humbled worship of you, our desire to give you all that we are for the sake of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.